0: hymn that we just signed may it be just more than just words that come out of our mouths may we really be willing to be taught by the Lord well we come as I said to the end of Paul's second missionary missionary journey and before we go to look and to seek to be instructed Uh, from these verses, I want to give a few uh, prefatory notes. Very much like a couple of, uh, over the last three weeks uh, today and in the next two weeks we are going to consider this end of the ministry of Paul uh, in his second missionary journey. And we're going to consider as well the ministry of Apollos and uh, just a small bit of the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And then we will pause uh, our exposition of the book of Acts, and I won't uh, spoil the, the surprise on what we will be looking at uh, after we uh, pause in the book of Acts, but the reason why we're going to go from looking at the end of Paul's missionary journey the ministry of Apollos and that first uh, bit of Paul's uh, ministry in Ephesus where Paul encounters those 12 disciples that hadn't received the baptism that had only received John the Baptist baptism is because I think they are the three of them are closely related. These three sections in the wisdom of God were placed here and they have a common denominator they have a particular uh, amongst other things message that we are to learn from and I've titled this sermon uh, and and that's the, the theme of the, the coming two uh, sermons as well in the coming two weeks Christianity in Flux you see C.S. Lewis spoke about uh, chronological snobbery. He he called chronological snobbery whenever people in the modern age uh, would dismiss things that have gone in the past. He would say, that's chronological snobbery. You cannot, if you think you don't have anything to learn from the past. And that is very much true. But I think there is also a little bit of chronological snobbery on the other side when we think that the further back we go, the purer and better the church was. This is quite per- pervasive in some Christian circles, this idea that if only we recover the, the sentiment of the church, the primitive church in Acts, then the church would be perfect. And I think there is chronological snobbery, if not full-blown ignorance of what was going on in the first century the church was not perfect. Far from it in the first century. Read any of the New Testament letters written by Paul, by, by John, by Peter, by, by James to the to the churches in the first century and you realize that actually the church was very far from being pure. That it was through the years and through the, the decades that some of these things that were pervasive in the church got changed. God clarified, got sharpened. One of the things we see with the book of Acts, and that is the second side of the danger uh, of this sentiment, this kind of chronological snobbery, is that we look at the book of Acts and treat it as if it's a, a prescribing book. The book of Acts is not trying to prescribe to us Theology, although it is full of theology, the book of Acts is trying to describe to us history, how things happened, the experience of the first century believers and the church and how the word of God spread. It's mainly an historical account of the work of the risen Christ expanding his kingdom throughout uh, the known world. It is not to be a, 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 a Prescriptive theological book it's when people come to Acts and use it as a theological prescriptive uh, instructive in all aspects book that we end up in trouble they look at Acts 2 and the, and the Pentecost and they say oh we need Pentecost as well they look at uh, some of the other things that happened there and we need that as well and we fail to realize that the, the period that is related and uh, written for us in the book of Acts is a period where the church is in flux. That there is a change happening. There is a, a moving away from uh, the Old Testament, Old Covenant religion, the Jewish religion, to Christianity And we see this in the fact that the disciples, the apostles met often in the synagogues and uh, right at the beginning that the apostles met in the temple. Uh, And I would argue that here in Acts 18 in the episode that we are considering today that the apostle Paul took a vow. And as we look Uh, in the coming week uh, and the following week as well there is other things that are happening that are very much because the church is in this transitional phase each of these three episodes that we will consider have a a common thread, a common denominator I would argue it's John the Baptist as the representative of the old covenant John the Baptist is mentioned here uh, in these three episodes implied in these three episodes if not mentioned uh, outright and it's meant for us to see that there is actually a transition happening perhaps we should have read the rest of the uh, of the text or the rest of the of this section but Apollos a minister who had only uh, had not been baptized with a Christian baptism, and then Paul, the, at the beginning of Ephesus, comes across uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, or they were were only baptized in the baptism of John. So, as we move forward, this is a fairly long with the introduction to the, the to the day and to the next two sermons. As we move forward, I want you to consider that we are looking at how. T- Christianity is transitioning from the Old Testament precepts to the New Testament church that we came to know and know today. This is not to minimize the Old Testament. This is not to minimize uh, John the Baptist. But it is, in fact, to say, as John the Baptist said, that it is important for him to decrease, for the Old Testament to decrease, so that Christ would increase so that we would see Christ fully. The principles, the morals, as a, as a caveat, the principles, the, mor- the morals, the, the, the truths of the Old Testament are timeless, they are for us, but the ceremonies, the rituals of the Old Testament have passed away, and that is clear from the New Testament, especially when we read the book of Hebrews. So that's the, the introduction bit to know where we are and where we are going. We read of Paul leaving Corinth. Verse 18 says that Paul still remained a good while in Corinth. He took, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. We read in this verse that after what we saw last week, the the wonderful the uh, wonderful undertaking of the Lord, and uh, in, in uh, keeping Galio from uh, making a, a decision disfavorable against the against Christianity, we read that Paul still remained a good while there. It is difficult for us to ascertain uh, what a good while means here. Was this just a few days? Was this a few weeks, a few months? We know that in the whole, Paul stayed at, uh, at Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. We learn that he left from Corinth and that he was destined, He was his final destination was to go to Antioch, in particular, to, uh, to Syria, in particular to Antioch of Syria, the place from where he started his missionary journey, it's his home church, his home uh, congregation. We are also told that he, when he came out of Antioch, he brought Priscilla and Aquila with him, two believers uh, he brought with him. They were Christians. And the question we ask is why did he bring these two? Who was left, as we know that Priscilla and Aquila were two very influential uh, serving people in the, in the early church, who was left there at Corinth to serve the church in Corinth? We are not told. Perhaps it was uh, Gaius. Perhaps it was Stephanus, Sosthenes. We don't know who stayed there. But we know that there was someone that was left there that Paul would not leave the congregation an orphan of leadership that we know that happened we don't know who it was that stayed there but Priscilla and Aquila, they packed up their stuff having been disciple instructed by Paul they were sent uh, they were coming with Paul in this trip and might ask, what, what about their work? What about their profession? What did they do about their their job? They were leather workers. They were tent makers in in uh, in Corinth. What, what were they gonna do? Well, they probably established themselves in Cancrea, or in Ephesus. In this case, they established a new branch of their of their work there. But it was. they they were packed up and they were turned uh, into missionaries. We are also told, and this is the point where I want to delve a a little bit on right now, that in Cancria, Paul had his hair cut off because he had taken a vow. The reference here is almost certainly to a vow of a Nazarite. And here you start thinking about who was the last Nazarite that we heard of of the old, in the Old Testament, it's John the Baptist Paul here had probably taken the vow of a Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6 we are given the instructions about the taking of vows in the Old Testament and if you could take a vow for 30 days, 60 days 100 days uh, you would let your hair grow, you would uh, keep from taking any kind of impure thing and he was usually a vow taken as an act of thanksgiving. And Paul, here we hear, or we read, that he had taken a vow. That he had contracted himself to observe this Old Testament, Old Covenant ceremonial prescription. And the question, obviously, is why did he do this? Paul, who seemed so strong, so, so... Determined to, to put away with the things of, of the old covenant. Why was he doing this? Why was the apostle making this vow? Why did he, who more than anyone else combated the observance of Jewish uh, old dispensation, uh, obsolete uh, prescriptions, why did he put himself under this prescription? It was, not, it was not certainly because he was trying to attain any kind of merit. We know this. It was probably not for a spiritual reason as to try and coerce, twist God's arm into doing something. As I said, he was probably out of thanksgiving or, and or, it could be both at the same time, or one or the other, he was doing this For the sake of evangelizing, of reaching out to the Jews. Paul himself, he gives this explanation, doesn't he? In his first letter to the Corinthians, he said to them, when he writes his first letter to them in chapter 9, verse 19 and 20, he says, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. It can be either the fact that Paul was still not completely rid of some of these things. It could be as well the fact that Paul uh, was trying to reach out to the Jews and he thought this is a good way for me to reach to them. Commentators, uh, they take different uh, one of these two uh, understandings. So, why is this connected to, to John the Baptist? We read that John the Baptist was the only, uh, was the, the last full Nazarite. In the Bible, there are three people that were full, uh, complete life uh, Nazarites. They were Nazarites from the, the beginning of their life to their deaths. Do you know who they are? One of them is Samson, the other one was Samuel, and the third one was John the Baptist. They were lifetime Nazarites, not Nazarenes, Nazarites, N-A-Z-I-R-I-T-E-S. They were full lifetime, totally devoted Nazarites, devoted to God. There is no occasion, at least in the Bible, where anyone else has taken this vow to themselves. So it's only those three, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And I think John the Baptist was quite influential in the life of Paul. John the Baptist was the last great prophet. He, he was the last of the, the Old Testament prophets. And certainly John the Baptist had a great influence in the life of Paul. Paul. As the Old Testament in itself had in the life of Paul, Paul was an Old Testament scholar. So some of these things might have still been lurking in his mind. There were some, the the there were still certainly some things that he hadn't quite actually worked out fully in his head. And this is not to the demerit of Paul. If you think I'm saying this. Uh, kind of casting some shadow in the, in the character and in the understanding of Paul. He was not perfect. He was a great, uh, a great man, but he was not perfect. The understanding of the church, of the New Testament, of the primitive church in the first century of these things was not complete and perfect. There were still things that they needed to work through. And usually, historically, Uh, the church will only sharpen their understanding of these things as controversies would show up, as things and heresies would prop up and and make themselves known. It is very much the history of the church that the church starts to understand things better and sharpen their understanding of of (laughs) theological issues and of practices when people say the wrong thing. It is the when Marcion comes in and starts ripping away with the Old Testament, that the church says, well, well, wait, why are you ripping away the Old Testament? No, the Old Testament is the word of God. We, we don't rip it away. And then the, the church gets, uh, furthers and, and strengthens and founds their understanding. It's when Arius comes in and starts saying, oh, well, Christ is uh, is." a kind of God but he's not fully God that the church says no wait let's go back to scripture let's look at what the the apostle said and it's at that point that the doctrine of the trinity gets fully fleshed out it is very much a period the first few centuries of the church a period of transformation that is why it's so problematic when we think oh let's just get back to the first century church be kind of like the first century church Paul was still meeting in the synagogues. Paul and, and other disciples were still taking vows. And I do not believe that the New Testament gives us a prescription to take vows. Especially when we look at the at the letters of Paul, Paul never makes mention of t- vows taking, of, of serving uh, or worshiping God by the taking of vows. And Paul says that we are to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6:17 says, "Wherefore you came out from them, be ye separate, be separate." So I'm not going to dwell too much on this uh, right now. We'll we'll talk a little bit more as we go onwards. But Paul here took a vow, probably 30 days, 60 days, 100 days, but probably 30. And the, the way the Nazarite vow worked is that you, you would let your hair grow, you would abstain from, from impure things. At the end of the, the period, you would cut your hair, you would uh, ideally, you, you would do this in Jerusalem, cut your hair, and you would present sacrifices, and along with those sacrifices, you would put the hair under the altar. And that's why perhaps there is this pressing need of Paul to go to, to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. He perhaps hasn't uh, fully fleshed out this distinction, this flux. And that's why when we get to Paul in Ephesus, he is in this pressing need, this, this desire by all means to keep the coming feast in Jerusalem. So what do we see in his passing through uh, Ephesus? This is him and Cancrea, where he had taken, uh, cut off his hair, and had taken a vow. He gets on the boat. He get, arrives at Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and now he is there preaching the words. What do we see there? We see that Priscilla and Aquila were there with him. An interesting point here. We read that um, he came to Ephesus and left them, uh, and left Priscilla and Aquila there. We know from the rest of the New Testament, and this this is a, an important lesson for us. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Priscilla and Aquila probably stay there for four, maybe five years. This is the year 51. Uh, right about the year 57, Priscilla and Aquila are back at Rome, and there's a church there that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house. They remain there for about four. Five, perhaps even six years uh, before they moved back to Rome once they were allowed to once the, that edict by Claudius that threw off or uh, threw away all the Jews from Rome was lifted after Claudius' death the important lesson here for us is one that we need to understand we often think, don't we We often think when we look at church history and we hear about uh, the great men, uh, the great heroes of the faith, the Spurgeons, the Whitfields, the Wesleys, we think, oh, these men, these men were great. And once they get to heaven, they're going to receive this great welcome uh, into heaven. And they're going to be right there in the front, uh, uh, very next to the throne of God. We think of things like this. We think that uh, notoriety we think that uh, serving the Lord in this kind of self-sacrificing, self-denying, fruitful ministry is what makes a, a Christian uh, the greater. I would submit to you that someone like Priscilla and Acula are just, if not more, great than many ministers and pastors and uh, and all of those great men and women of the past or men that served uh, in particular as pastors and ministers in the past. And yet they were not in full-time ministry. They were regular Christians like you. They had their own jobs. And they used those jobs to glorify God. You read the Aquila and Priscilla, probably the next time, uh, chronologically, as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He sends his regards from the church in Ephesus where is the church in Ephesus meeting at Priscilla's and Aquila's house they were willing to move from Corinth to Ephesus and to stay there and to serve there and to pour out their lives there for the service of the gospel and yes, they had a business activity. They had, they had their own leather working uh, jobs. And they probably established themselves in that way there in that region. And Paul left them there. He dropped Priscilla and Aquila there. He went to, to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. And he left them there. And this is, this, the beauty of this is that it doesn't really matter what kind of job you, you, you do. It doesn't really matter where, uh, um, what kind of profession you're doing. If the Lord has called you, if the Lord has placed those talents in your hands, you are to serve Him faithfully. I tried to find uh, this illustration by Spurgeon. Spurgeon had this beautiful illustration of this... Uh, Young woman who died in her early age, and her reception in heaven was was a, a great uh, celebration, just as great as uh, when Wesley came in. Why? Because she served the Lord faithfully as a, uh, a maid, uh, as a servant of the household, and she lived very little years, and she didn't have a ministry to boast about. She was very sickly. But with her sickness in the hospital Spurgeon says she this is an illustration by the way Spurgeon didn't have any kind of access to knowing if this is ha- uh, how it went it's just Spurgeon trying to illustrate the point why was God so pleased with her because with the little that she was given with the little amount of time in her life that she was given with the little uh, intellectual capacity that she was given with the little physical uh, enabling that she was given she served the Lord First and foremost, with her job and with her sickness in the hospital, she preached and she, she tried to read the word with, the, with her fellows in the same ward. That is how we serve the Lord. We all are called to the service of the Lord. And Priscilla and Aquila give us here a wonderful representation of this. They were willing to put down all their lives to uproot themselves, to go to another city, To establish themselves in a in another city, to serve the Lord there with their their hospitality, with their profession, and that is the most beautiful thing. What is it that you do for a living? How is it that you can serve the Lord with your with your with your profession, with your calling, with your talents? How is it that you fit in in the economy of the kingdom of God? You see, we tend, maybe this is the best way to explain it. We tend to think that uh, when it comes to the kingdom of God, that, that the most important people in this world serving the Lord uh, in the kingdom of God are pastors and preachers and missionaries. Those are the most important people. Those are the priority people. No! Those are the people that tell the most important people how to serve. The most important people are You guys. And me, as as a, a Christian, as we go out into the world, as we serve the Lord in the world, in all our professions, in all our vocations, the real Christian's job is out there. As we go, we serve the Lord. Again, Paul in Ephesus uh, it must have been a whirlwind to be a, a friend, uh, 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 a co-laborer with Paul. As you consider all these things, Paul is just playing chess with his co-laborers. He picks up Timothy here, he puts Timothy there, he picks up Silas here, he, he tells him to stay there. He goes with Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus and perhaps it's only when they arrive at Ephesus because of the good reception that they had, that Paul says, well, actually now that I think of it if the Lord wills I will come back but you guys stay here you guys stay here help these people here it must have been a whirlwind to work with with someone as as Paul you never actually knew what was going to happen tomorrow and the wonderful thing is that Paul was very well received here and this is a shocking thing up until now in this missionary journey Paul has been uh, received well in some places but there has always been opposition. It's Paul having to go somewhere else because, because of the opposition and he comes to Ephesus and he's well received and he, he, everyone uh, receives him so well and he says well actually I cannot stay. I have to go because I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to keep this feast. I have to get to this feast. I have to put the hair the the hair on the altar we don't know if it's the Feast of Pentecost or if it's the Feast of Passover and honestly if, if it was important the Holy Spirit would have told us but he had to be there he had to go and he went he says that he when he landed at Caesarea he went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch there is only one city in the in the and in the in biblical history uh, that Christians and Jews and would refer to as going up and then moving away from the city going down, that's Jerusalem some commentators say that, oh, we cannot be sure that Paul went to Jerusalem well it's the only city in the history of the, of the Bible that it's always referred to as going up to and then going down from he went up he greeted the church and then he went down and went to, uh, to Antioch And Paul visited them, and Paul stayed there for a while. He probably reported uh, to them in in Jerusalem what happened. And then we come to Antioch, and again, we are not told by Luke. Luke is quite, under the inspiration of the Spirit, summarized uh, in this whole um, end of the second missionary journey and beginning of the third. But that's because Luke tries not to repeat himself. Luke already told us in Acts 14 what Paul did once he arrived at, uh, at, Cor- uh, at Antioch of Syria, that Paul uh, told them and uh, reported to them all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And he stayed there for a while, and then we read, on he goes. There goes Paul again for his third missionary journey. And it's exactly the same route. He goes through Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And we know that he actually came back to Antioch. So this is what happened at the end of the, the second missionary journey. And alongside some of the lessons that I already mentioned, let me mention four more lessons in, quick, uh, in a quick fashion from this section of text one of them with Paul is the necessity of finishing the work we start finishing the missions entrusted to us and being accountable for the actions to those in authority Paul as he finishes his second missionary journey an apostle by the way Someone who could lord it over others and say, I'm an apostle, I I have to answer to no one but Christ himself. He felt, just as at the end of the, the first missionary journey, he felt he knew that he had a responsibility towards those who sent him. So he goes to Antioch. In spite of all the setbacks, in spite of all the difficulties, the tribulations, the failures that Paul faced, he did not give up, he persevered, and he brought his work to an end. And he brought a report, again, to the church in Antioch of what was going on. And what we learn is that we need to be accountable. We need to, to be persevering, and we need to be humble in carrying out those things and those tasks that have been entrusted to us by the Lord the lesson the big lesson that i want to emphasize is the lesson that we take from this period of transition we'll probably talk more about it next week as well but we need to be patient don't we as we look to the to these uh, different things being uh, transitioning from the Old Testament towards the New Testament, towards a, a Christian a New Testament understanding of Christianity, as the, the the New Testament Church sheds its old clothes uh, of Old Testament rituals, you might notice that the Scripture never actually uh, criticizes. That although the, the Christians were meeting in the temple, that although there were still sacrifices being made, and we know now from the, from the establishment of the New Testament canon that those things are wrong, and in fact even sinful, that because this was a special, particular time of transition, these things were still uh, allowed. How do we translate this to our own time? How do we translate this to our own experiences? I think the the patience and the prudence is very much a lesson for us, especially when we're talking about people changing and reforming. In terms in times of change, we are a good reformed church. we theologically, we we hold we believe to the to the to re, the right understanding of what Scripture teaches. But well, we might at times be uh, faced with having people come from different persuasions of Christianity, and this is not to say that we embrace and accept those different persuasions, but that we lovingly, patiently, and gently give them time to work these things through. I think this is a principle that is contained in in this in this time in this in this passage. The principle of charity, love, patience it might not be uh, someone from another circle of Christianity it might be a Christian that was converted from, uh, from Islam and although those peop- uh, uh, she is a Christian or she or he is a Christian there, there are people who perhaps still have some of those things cultural things from their own religion from their own uh, background that they need to work through and instead of saying, no, you've become a Christian today, and today you have to put all these things to, ba- uh, to, to rest, we say, no, actually, take your time. Let's, let's be patient. It might not be a, a religious background. It might be someone who's converted out of a, a, a lascivious and licentious living in the world. And yes, of course, we wouldn't be patient with, with open sin and those things. But perhaps we need to be patient with with some of those things as people work those things through. It is very much in the in the in the Christian way of doing things to be patient, to be gentle, to be charitable. To be prudent reformers like John Calvin like John Knox when it came to things that were not that were not how to express this better when it came to things that were not of matters of salvation they were more patient when it came to things that were not of biblical uh, principle they were more patient. They were more condescending. Third lesson. Paul teaches us that we need to take every opportunity that God gives us to make known the gospel and this we've looked at in every city that Paul has been in but even here as Paul is quickly trying to make his way to Jerusalem he cannot help it he stops at Ephesus what does he do he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the with the with the Jews there and he he's trying to preach the gospel to them to tell them about Christ in the same way it, it is up to us to do the same to to take all the opportunities no matter how uh, where our final destination is if we have an opportunity preach the gospel preach the gospel and fourth and last lesson I think one what we learn here is to perhaps the main lesson as well to entrust ourselves to the providence of God although Paul Paul was certainly surprised with the reception in Ephesus. He knew that he had to be somewhere else. He was convicted by the spirit that he had to go. And he says, well, if God wills, God willing, I'll return to you. But this time, I need to go. And the lesson for us, what the apostle teaches, is that we need to condition to our plans to hold our intentions always in check with God's will. If the Lord wills, if the Lord desires, God willing, we will do this. God willing, we will do that. The expression, God willing, reflects an absolute dependence of the Apostle Paul in the good, perfect, pleasing will of God. That's what James says and I'll close with this. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Come now, James says, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, God willing, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Let us learn to submit and subject ourselves to the will of God. Let us learn from this passage that we are to, to entrust ourselves fully to the will of God.